Welcome to the Vintage Podcast, which this month leaves the comfortable confines of the studio and heads out into the wilderness. We may have lost the sunny heat for the moment, but we want to take you back to a glorious summer weekend in Cornbury Park in Oxfordshire and Vintage Lives event at the Wilderness Festival. Alex Clark interviewed a range of authors about their writing, getting published and seeing their work adapted for the big screen. It's a live event, so the audio isn't as clean as we'd like it to be usually, but we promise you that the quality of the guests is as good as ever. Enjoy. Hello, my name's Alex Clark, and we've got a very special podcast for you this month. We're live at the Wilderness Festival, where we've taken over an entire marquee for a day of live literary fun. We will be joined by authors Anna Whitworm, Nikki Cloak, Kirsty Logan, Evie Wilde, Samantha Harvey, Samantha Ellis, Andrew McMillan, and Deborah Mogak. We are going to start with Anna Whitworm and Nikki Cloak. How to write your first novel. What were you doing in your lives? before you decided to write your your novels and how did you sort of make that transition how did you manage to weave becoming a writer into you know presumably working life what what, what was it like um well this was my the second book that i wrote the first one that i wrote was um during my ma and it really wasn't and i sent it out to, to many places and it got rejected and which is fair enough because it really was pretty bad but it was kind of my first sort of kind of go and I was about 24 25 um, and then I didn't write for ages until I did a PhD and I clearly work well with that sort of discipline so for me I need someone to go right can I have this many words by this point and this many words by this point and that helped me but I was I've never ever just written and I don't know anybody really that does um, because it don't make a living from it um well some do but um so i was working as a copywriter but i've um while i was while i was working on this so i was um using lunch breaks i remember parissa would send me edits in and i'd do them in my lunch break who's my editor and i'd send them back because you just have when you have to get things done you get them done and i have written when i'm not working and on a holiday and stuff and i i actually I, every writer is different but the stress of deadlines absolutely makes me a better writer. So you need someone standing mm. over you saying actually you've only got an hour no. to do this or yeah, four yeah. hours to write this next absolutely. chapter or whatever. Yeah. What about you Nikki? Was it similar? Um, well actually when I first my, wrote my first novel which isn't this one um, I was working in publishing and I think I just assumed when I left university that's what I'd do because I loved books and I don't think it ever occurred to me that I could just write my own um, but when I was working in publishing I realised quite quickly that it wasn't for me. I didn't like seeing sort of behind the scenes of this thing that I love so much. What, because it sort of spoiled it? Yeah, it's like yeah. seeing like how the magic works. Um, so I started secretly writing at work, um, and then not, and then... This is a theme, basically. <laughs> you were all writing kind of on the quiet yeah. at work, okay. And then not so secretly a bit later. Um, and after I sold my first novel, I did leave work, and I took a year out to write this one. Um, but as Anna said, I actually found it when you've got so much time, you kind of don't have the impetus to get going. So I've gone back to work part time now, and that's the kind of right balance for me. I have a couple of days that are writing days in the week, and the other days are sort of work days, and that seems to be right for me. Obviously, one of the things that you have to do is reckon with the possibility of a lot of failure and rejection. I mean, you have, you said with your first novel that you realised was, was no good and you had lots of rejection. How do you kind of handle that? Well, I, I when the first book, uh, 
I threw it out there and it got sent back. Um, I stopped, I actually did stop writing for a while. I took it all, I mean, I was quite young and I took it quite badly and thought, oh, well, I'm rubbish and that was it. And then it was a very kind teacher that said, why aren't you writing? That's a real thing. I get a really good teacher because they really help and they can be very supportive. And then I started writing again and then I think a little bit of maturity and being able to take, actually that's something, being able to take rejection and criticism, especially because you think once your book's, oh, someone wants to publish my book, all, all is well. And then you have the next kind of stage and phase of people reviewing it or kind of giving you feed. Lots of people give you lots of feedback on your book, whether you want it or not. Um, and so you've got that stage to go through. So actually you just do naturally develop layers as you go. I have certainly, I can kind of, take some of the hits yeah. a lot more now you know yeah yeah you have to I think the thing that's helped me most is when I think about it, when I don't like someone else's book it's not personal mm -hmm. and I you have to kind of think how you feel when you read a book and it's so detached when you're a reader but the author it's so so personal you have to kind of learn to distance yourself a bit I think and it's not a personal rejection it's just people have different tastes yeah. okay shall we throw ourselves open to God knows what and uh, and ask the audience to come up with some questions. Did you go directly to publishers? Did you find an agent first? What was the sort of physical process? I went in the agent route I think um, and working in publishing did help me with that because I sort of knew that most publishers now won't see books without an agent being involved. Um, and I actually, I don't know about you but the agent, my relationship with my agent is probably the most important part of the whole process because they're kind of the hand that holds yours the whole way through um, and the person who gives you the most sort of detailed feedback in the very vulnerable early stages of a draft that you wouldn't want anybody else to see. And how did you find your agent? How did that happen? Um, so again, I sort of inside information, I, I'd seen a book come in to the publisher I worked for that I loved. They didn't buy it because not everyone else loved it. Um, but I knew that that agent had similar tastes to me, so I approached her. Um, yeah. And I think that's a good thing, like if you're looking for an agent, it's good to look at the books that you really love or think are like yours, and then check the acknowledgements, and they usually will acknowledge the agent, yeah. and that's a good way to... Yes, find the right agent, yeah. because no agent agents every kind of writer or every kind no. of book, do they? No. Anna, what about you? What's your... Um, yeah, same, my agent first, and then they, because then they take care of all the kind of ugly business of trying to find a publisher as well, so it's quite, you kind of send, let them do all the, the heavy lifting. But yeah, I had a friend, I knew someone who was represented by this agent and uh, you know, I was rejected a lot when I was younger. So this was a real kind of, getting an agent was a massive moment. It's the first bit of confidence, yeah, isn't it? When an agent takes you on, it sort of really validates. They yeah. think there's something out. Well, yeah. I suppose one thing to point out there is because an agent doesn't get paid at all if they don't sell their client's work. So they're not going to take on anyone who they don't think they can sell the work yeah. at some point. Um, thinking about your first books, how painful was the editing, Steve? How painful was the editing process? Did you get into fights? Especially, of course, when you have that moment when someone's crossed out what you love the most. I wouldn't get into a fight with you, Anna, though, I must say. Not with all that boxing background. I have a very, very tough editor who's brilliant, and it was really painful at first. I remember the first edit I got back was just exactly what you said, just read, not, not lines, pages. Pages just kind of streaked and read, and I was going, I really knew that, that was a really good line. That was a really, really. But I also teach creative writing, and students have kind of given me work to look at. And I think 
no, that's that's your line. That's not for the reader, you know. And you can and you need a really good editor to help you with that. And I've got a brilliant one, and I trust her. And that's so important, the trust in your editor, because you don't want an editor that's making it their book. It's your book, and they have to respect and know the way you write. And if you get one of those, you're just it's so lucky. And and I feel very happy about the way I was edited. It was tough though, yeah, to let go. Exactly the same. Or <laughs> well, with my first novel, it's actually with the agent that I was with at the time, uh, she called me into her office and said, I love it, but I think you need to cut 50%. So it was, there was four characters in it originally, and she said, get rid of those two, keep those two. And that's six months work, that, you know, that's a lot. But actually it was so freeing because I immediately sort of thought, oh, you're right. That is the problem. They're, they're, what's wrong? Do you think you could ever have seen it yourself? No, Even no. if you'd sat down and read through the book ten times, you would never not. have seen that. But in, then the in minute she said it, it was so freeing. I'm like, oh, yes. This is what I'm, I went into those six months of work excited and happy. And that's the, the secret to a good editor, I think, is they can make you feel enthusiastic about a lot of work. About destroying your work. <laughs> <laughs> There's a question over there, yes. How you found your main character and started to develop them and got the story going? Well... <laughs> He's my ex, really. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so you found him quite easily. Okay. And I think that actually, over the draft, he became his own character because I think maybe I was taking out some feelings on, on the character. And once they were all out, I could start to round them off and make him a better person. Um, Obviously, I want to ask if he read the book, but maybe he has read it. He didn't think it was like him at all. Okay. I don't think people ever do. Right. People don't recognise themselves in books, do they? Well, so Mike Randall was the big kind of um, source for, for Bobby in my book, but I remember my mum and dad lived in, in these flats and there was a, a young man who was always kind of just out, out of it on the ground floor. And I just, every day, and I just remember thinking, I don't know what some, what do you do if you're, he's back to a, you know, young man. And I thought, what, what's he doing? He's got actually nothing. He's, I don't know what he's doing in his kind of daily life here. And I thought, well, what if you got someone with my granddad's codes, put them into a young man like that, made him kind of really, really good looking. So people wanted to read about him a bit more. And um, and then the boxing thing came in, but it was a very character driven book this. Anyway, Bob, the, the, the hero of the book, got the story going. The story, he, he was the story. Yeah, question just behind that, yeah. Writing dialogue, it is tricky, and I suppose as, as readers, we know when it sounds clunky and unreal, don't we? So how do you go about writing dialogue? And do you, for example, do you read it out to, to see if it sounds lifelike? Um, it's so hard, and I remember hearing, especially when I was writing this, because it's a London book, and it's a London that I don't really belong to, and it's male, and it's youthful, and I remember hearing Zadie Smith talk about NW, and she said she just avoided slang, because slang is forever changing, and it's so fluid, and I completely avoided that with this, and I avoid, avoided kind of doing accents, and kind of writing any kind of, in any kind of phonetic way, because I just thought this is just gonna end terribly badly. Um, and I went, one of my favorite writers, the only advice about dialogue, I guess, is read, and listen, and listen, and listen, and I, one of my favourite writers is Grace Paley, and I think she does dialogue brilliantly because she doesn't, it, it's just so spare and kind of neat. And if you read her short stories, you'll see she does it brilliantly. I am going to ask you what you are doing now and where you are going next in your imagination. What is happening for both of you? Um, I have sort of 
change direction a little bit. So I've got a young adult book coming out next year. So I've been doing that for a while and I've just started the next adult novel. So it's the exciting new notebook stage where you're just writing lots right. of things down. The best part. Anna. And I have just um, kind of stormed ahead and written about half of my second novel, which I've just sent to my agent, who is the only other person in the world that will have read it. So I'm waiting to hear notes. So we are in that period when the second, third books are on their way. Um, but we still have Lay Me Down and Boxer Handsome. Big round of applause for Anna Gottman and Nikki Thank you so much. As you know, this, this session is what is fiction for? We set ourselves all the easiest questions uh, up on this stage. And it's, I'm going to be joined by Evie Wilde and Samantha Harvey. We're going to talk about this terribly easy question, aren't we, Sam? You're the author of three novels. Your third is Dear Thief. Just tell us a little bit about what it is, what the sort of the kind of rough scenario, if you can, and then give us a flavour of it. Dear Thief is a novel-length letter that's from one woman to another. Uh, they're friends. They're sort of been friends almost all of their lives, and it's a story of a love triangle and the the writer of the letter, who doesn't have a, a name in the novel is writing to her friend because the last time she saw her friend she sort of ran off with her husband so they're estranged and there's a lot of animosity and uh, love and hatred and uh, an attempt at forgiveness a sort of thwarted attempt at forgiveness so it's a sort of psychological uh, emotional landscape really of the this woman's mind at the time of writing about this event that happened sort of 15 years before. This business of what is fiction for, when you say what is it for, we mean what is it for for who? For the writer? For the reader? For the world at large? For sort of literature, you know, whatever that is. Mm. How do you even begin to kind of consider a question like that? It's a good question in itself because what it's for for the writer is something different to what it's for for the reader and, and then there's this bigger question, what role does it play in the world when we have, you know, endless, uh, as the blurb for this is, we have endless stories, and I think about this a lot, we have enormous numbers of ways to divert ourselves, either through uh, writing, through uh, HBO box sets, through film, video games, documentaries, fly on the wall stuff, and it's very difficult to know what role a novel plays in all of that because you know it's changed obviously changed so much in the last 20 years the novel used to be kind of one of the only forms of entertainment people had so that's clearly not the case anymore yes and often novels i mean were exactly that they were forms of entertainment i mm. mean you could have novels that were written serially as many of the kind of early novels were or certainly 19th century novels were mm. uh, where a writer would be writing as they went along and this idea of a novel is, a, in a way, a sort of more rarefied mm. art object, um, at least a literary novel. That's that's a relatively recent development, isn't it? I think it is, yeah. And I'm not sure it's right either. I'm not sure the novel is that rarefied, really. I think novelists like to think it is, and it seems the kind of the pure form and the form that everyone wants to come to when they start writing. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I agree. <clears throat> it's one form. It's one way of expressing um, an idea. I think what's so compelling about the novel and maybe this is part of what what it's for is that it's um a kind of very uh prolonged deep thought experiment particularly 
a, a literary novel. But I think all novels actually, they're sort of taking an idea and playing it out. They, they're sort of giving it characters, they're, they're giving it a place, a, a time, and just running it through and seeing what happens. You know, when you push that, when you push that thought or that scenario or that story, what happens to it? Because a novel isn't just a story. You know, I can tell the story of my novel in in two minutes. Yeah. It's done, but it you know, it's, it's just a plot. It's, it's yes, yes. yes. Yeah. But even even a very plot-driven novel isn't just a story. Otherwise, why? If it's just a story, why not just tell someone? It, you know, over mm. a cup of tea. I mean, one of the things thinking about your work, thinking about all your novels, they are all in one or other way explorations of consciousness and subjectivity. One, what's going on in one person's head, and oftentimes to what goes on when they lose that consciousness or they lose that ability to sort of think very clearly. So I, I just wonder if you could explain what the novel is for you, what you wanted it to do in your writing, what were the things you most wanted to explore? Um, this isn't something I'm in myself conscious of as I write. I don't think, okay, I want to deal with this thing. But I, I've learned over the years of, as I've been writing that what I'm actually interested in with novels is this whole elaborate exercise in empathy and trying to occupy another person's consciousness and try to understand how somebody else, albeit somebody else who's made up by me, <laughs> so is it somebody else? Not really, but um, how somebody else sees the world, what, how they react to things in a way that I might not react to them. Um, what happens when certain events occur to them? What happens when they lose a sense of self as well? Um, sort of finding and losing a sense of who you are. So that was something you wrote about in, in your earlier work, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, really, I'm very interested in, um, in selfhood and what constitutes it. And novels are very good at that. I think that's something they can do. Other forms can do it, but other forms don't give you such um, intimate access to another person's point of view. Um, I, th I think that's one of the things that a novel can add. Well, and what they also do, I suppose, is do that in language. I mean, do we think that that kind of exploration of another person's consciousness is something that another art form can do in other ways? Yeah, I, I think other art forms can do it, but novels do it as you say through language and I think this is where as, as we sort of as novelists fearfully watch the what looks like the sort of demise of their craft you know there's less and less readership for novels and um, and the readership is for much more commercial novels I think less literary but what is that? <laughs> um, but what novels have and what we should I think what we need to really go with now and, and not not shy away from is language. That's what they have, that's what they do, that's what nothing, no other form outside of literature has. It's, it's language, it's not just giving us a world, but it's giving us a world that's made of words, made only of words, and the things that you can do with words, how kind of pliable and malleable they are, and how they're little, you know, each word is a, is a gateway to something and that and that world that it's a gateway to is different for every single person here every single person who reads that novel so it's in because they're made of words they're an extremely abstract form and i think that's what's so wonderful about them if you watch um uh, 
even if you watch a, a film version of a novel, you're being given characters, you can see them, someone's decided what they look like, but if you're reading, you decide what they look like, you project where they are, um, you add your own experience, your own world and everything to, to that. And I think it's the abstraction that the novel is completed by the reader in the reading, and so it's a different experience for every single person, and that's something that you don't get, I think, in other forms at such an extreme way, because so much is given to you in other forms. Evie, would you, we would, we've just been talking about um, the limits of fiction, what the meaning of fiction is, where it can take us, which is particularly apposite, because you've written two, what we'd call literary novels, two kind of straightforward novels in, in one sense. Um, and now you've written a graphic novel, haven't you? And this book is, um, is a collaboration. So this again is something that not a lot of literary novelists get to do, collaborate with other, other kinds of writer or artist. And it's born of your childhood obsession slash terror yeah. of sharks, right? It is, yeah. Just explain and it's, the um, so it's, a, it's also to do with growing up between Australia and Peckham and the sort of <laughs> discomfort that my parents had in each other's countries. Um, so it's sort of through my eyes as a six-year-old child watching that. So what sharks became a sort of symbol of a, uh, of something, I suppose, very exotic when you're in Peckham. A shark yeah, is a very exotic figure. I think so. And, and it took me, it took us six or seven years to write it. So during that time, a lot of stuff happened. Um, including the death of my father, which happens at the end now. At the beginning, it was just a sort of a load of short kind of memories. And, and then once that happened, it sort of highlighted a lot of the uh, a lot of the male stuff. There's a shark attack survivor called Rodney Fox, who's very famous in Australia, um, who's now a, a, an eco-warrior and amazing guy um, that I had a massive crush on. And, um, and he's sort of... Um, I don't know, there are all these moments now, looking back, that are all about my father, so it's kind of, yeah, it's a strange sort of gift to him, I suppose. I mean, I love lit I love um, graphic fiction and graphic memoir, I think, in particular, David Small and, and Mouse and um, all those kind of really amazing books that are, are written with so few words, and I think, um, for me, my, my novels seem to be getting smaller and smaller, it's about taking the words out and, and you know, letting the reader kind of fill in the gaps. So this seems like a sort of natural next leap, just making it, making the words smaller and the silence is bigger. And when you started to do it, were there at points at which you thought, actually, I don't know how to do this. This is sort of something so new to me, I don't really yeah, quite know what I'm doing. There's definitely a moment when Joe drew me morphing into a shark. Um, <laughs> I'll just see if I can find it, which um, threw me a bit at the time, and now I love it. Okay. Being presented with that image, you just go, <laughs> not really sure where to go but actually it was really really interesting kind of it became like a conversation um, with you know the words influencing the pictures and the pictures influencing the words and it kind of grew that way so it was quite nice Sam to, just to bring you in here I mean of course we've been talking about writing as with the assumption it's a totally solitary practice isn't it you are there with the words with the page with, with your head do you think you could ever sort of feel that you could collaborate with someone? Does it, does it just feel very counter to your kind of project? It doesn't, this kind of collaboration doesn't, because it's not with another writer, mm. I guess. You're not mm. on it 
on each other's territory, you're complementing one another's territory. I think I couldn't work with another writer on too much of a megalomaniac, I think. <laughs> I think most write, most writers are, actually. Yeah. I mean, I guess no, I have never write a novel with another person. No. I mean, it's, it's I mean, it, it very occasionally happens, doesn't it? Sometimes in, in crime books, where yeah. actually well, you can sort of see a point because mm. you're kind of testing whether something's suspenseful or scary, or yeah. you, you know, yeah. you can actually throw that idea at someone and say, "Is this very terrifying?" or whatever. Yeah. But it, it it is hard to see how that that would work. A big hand for Sam Harvey and Evie Wilde. Thank you very much. We are going to talk about heroines, who they are, what they are. Are they relevant? Do they have to be good? Are they bad for us? First, a round of applause for Kirsty Logan and Samantha Ellis. We last, we bumped into each other, you and I, about a month ago or so, by total chance, um, at the theatre. And we were about to go and see a three hour and 40 minute long play with only two very, very short intervals, barely enough time to drink a glass of wine. Um, but it was Greek tragedy in which the lead female character had to essentially okay her husband sacrificing their daughter in order to appease the gods of war. So I mention that by way of saying these ideas of women's role, what a heroine is and isn't, what heroic behaviour is and isn't, started right back then, probably before that, probably in the Bible. Is that right? Is that a, a reasonable reading? Absolutely. I mean, I think um, the idea of what a heroine is, um, which I think is different from what a hero is, I, I think there are things that heroines tend to be, tend to be doing. A lot of heroes tend to be doing things that are different from what heroes do. Um, and uh, um, the sort of the hero's journey, which is sort of the guide to kind of writing films and everything, they say that heroines need to um, defeat a dragon and come and uh, go on a journey, defeat a dragon, come back with treasure that will heal their people. And uh, when Joseph Campbell, who wrote this book, was asked what about heroines, he said women don't need to make those journeys. So, <laughs> so what was the heroine's role then? What was her role in 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 her story? Well, it was to fall in they love. Often, it's often about how they deal with love and how they get married. But I think it's often. I was very interested to find uh, lots of heroines who. Um, who are um, very interesting, the ones I really loved, like Anne of Green Gables, um, they're very good on female friendship. Um, the heroines of uh, Shirley Conrad's Lace, brilliant on female friendship. There's loads of love and sex in that book, Goldfish, etc. But there's also loads and loads and loads about um, them being really good friends, and they love work in that book. So, so there are lots of, I think, sort of the idea of what you do in the world as a heroine. Um, and I think the other thing that heroines tend to do more of that heroes don't is that they, they tend to kind of have a, a process of trying to come to terms where they've come from and where they're going. So a family is very important for heroines and often heroes just go off and get their dragons and don't really care about their moms. <laughs> Kirsty, over to you. Did you think of these two characters, North and Kalanish, as heroines, as heroines in your book or, or was that not something that came into your thinking? No, I think if you sat down to write a book where you were trying to write a heroine that everyone would look up to and live their lives by, that would be a really terrifying proposition and you would just stop before you'd written a single word. I think I just wanted them to feel real. I mean, of course, it's a flooded world, they live on boats, there's a bear on a boat. It's not a realistic world, it's a fantasy world, but also I wanted the characters to feel real because I think when you're writing a fantastical story that's not set in this world, that's what has to feel really real is the characters' emotions and the way that they react to things. So I find it really interesting what you were saying about 
for a heroine family is really important and um, because the, the journey that North and Callanish are both on is this journey to find a home or make a home for themselves and it's only much later in the book when they meet one another they realise that perhaps they could have a home together rather than each have a home separately. So I, I do think they they go on a very important journey and they learn to create a home for themselves but also for someone else and maybe that's a uniquely female thing that in, in saving yourself you save someone else. Yeah this idea of things changing, of heroines changing, I mean that's a lot of what this book is about uh, and it's also about um, books talking to one another across across the years, isn't it? Across the decades and centuries. So I start, when I start talking to my friends about rereading my childhood books, we all read the same books, you know, and we all like to talk about them together. And you know, there was a sort of the canon of girls literature, and even it's, it's quite small, which is quite. So we've all read, you know, a lot of us have read what Katie did and and Green Gables and Little Women. You know, these books kind of endure, and there's quite a small kind of group of them. Um, and I think they're all, yeah, of course, they're all absolutely kind of feeding one into the other and you see the same, but the people are reworking it. Jacqueline Wilson's just rewritten what Kate did into this fantastic um, uh, young adult, well actually I think more younger than young adult, young adult um, novel called Katie in which it, I can't reveal the ending but it's just so much more empowering than the, the real Kate, what Katie did. I, I mean I loved what Katie did and what Katie did next when I started, I loved it. Love those them. books. <laughs> but I remember you telling me that one of the things that um, took you aback when you reread them was to discover that when Katie isn't well, what happens to her? Well, it's all about now, thank goodness you're not well, you have a horrific spinal injury, now you can go to God's school, which is a school of pain, and you're going to become a great woman, and you're going to become the angel in the house. And I was just like, really? And then she becomes this like, lovely, lovely, happy, angelic person. And um, when I was, one of the things the book was about is that when I was um, just before I was turned 19, I started having um, uh, very frequent seizures, and it didn't make me a lovely person. I was really furious all the time. I was just furious all. The, I'm still furious. I mean, it's taken up a lot of my life, but I didn't need to, you know, all the things I could have done when I wasn't having fits would have been, you know, I'm still angry about it. I don't think it's. I don't think it would be. I don't think there's no point. It would, it would be totally dishonest for me to go. No, it's made me a lovely person. <laughs> awful. And I just thought, why should it? You should be angry. You shouldn't be ill. Yeah. You know, everyone gets ill, of course, but don't be excited about it. You know, it's not how you become a woman. So yeah, I, that's one book I don't. I wouldn't reread. <laughs> <laughs> what of the books here that you reread? Did you think, oh yeah, yes, this is. <laughs> I'm so glad I did, it's fantastic. Uh, Anne of Green Gables is just, I've given that to so many of my friends' kids since I read it again. It's, it's beautiful, it's beautifully written. The writing is phenomenal, phenomenal writing. And uh, she's just a lovely character and she's got this, um, She's got this thing where she tries to, she uses empathy and imagination in this beautiful way. She tries to imagine herself into other people's shoes and then she helps them in their lives and she's just really this sunny kind of character but without being uh, Pollyanna-ish or what Katie did-ish. Um, that one I really loved. Um, I um, I found the bell jar, Sylvia Plath, surprisingly optimistic. Having <laughs> I know you're all looking skeptically, but um, honestly, there's all this kind of light in it, and there's this hope for the future in it that I found really powerful, and I would definitely read that again. Yeah. Thank you very very much, Percy Logan and Tina Fairley. So I'm going to leave you in the extraordinary hands of Andrew Macmillan, who is going to read from his debut collection of poetry, Physical, which is, uh, I can say, very little more than extraordinary, and I think you will agree once you've heard him read. Thank you very much, Andrew, for coming. Thank you very much.
It was one of my bosses that started that applause, but that was nice anyway. Um, the book, in kind of many ways, I think, deals with just different ideas of masculinity um, and whatever that means. And it's always seemed to me that if you want to kind of understand what's happened to masculinity in the 21st century, you go and watch straight men try and interact with each other in a gym. Because they just kind of can't do it. It's fantastic to watch. Um, and so this poem is called The Men Are Weeping in the Gym. The men are weeping in the gym, using the hand dryer to cover their sobs. Their hearts have grown too big for their chests. Their chests have grown too big for their shirts. They are dressed like kids who have forgotten their games kits. They are crying in the toilet, and because they have built themselves as statues, this must mean that God has entered them. They are wringing their faces like sweat towels in the sink. Their veins are about to burst their banks. They are flooding out of themselves onto the tiles. They have turned water into protein shakes. They have got too close to the mirrors. They have got too close to the glass, and now they are laying in the broken pools of their own faces. The lines of them at the decline press, the bicep curl, waiting, staring straight ahead, swearing that the wetness on their cheeks is perspiration, that the words they mutter as they lift are meaningless, that they feel nothing when the muscle tears itself from itself, that they don't hear the thousands of tiny fracturings needed to build something stronger. Um, and I guess staying in that kind of exercise vein, there's a lot of people doing yoga, a lot of very flexible people doing a lot of yoga at this festival. Um, I did yoga once, and rather than get enlightenment, I got a poem. Um, and so I thought I'd read that for you. So this is just called Yoga. We are told to tell our bodies that they are beautiful. We are told not to pass judgment on where the breath may fall. In the dry heat of July, we bend our bodies beyond their normal boundaries, push past the bones until we look like unkempt foliage, delirious in our own abandon. We are told to root our feet into the ground. We are told to hear all sounds around us as vibrations. We have forgotten that the body can hold on to negativity. We are told to sigh this out. We are told that only empty things are light enough to fly. We end by flying, hoisting up our partners by our feet, taking the weight on our forearms on the ground. The flyer feels bodiless until the heft begins to shake the legs and the architecture of the limbs collapses. It needs trust in the strength of body of another to support your own, to delay and then control the falling. Later, showered, fed and still too warm, stretched out on the mattress in the new flat, nothing but dust on the bare walls, you pressed me down, took control, took me in your mouth. I regret now being so passive, but you made me feel weightless. And the next night, light gone in the hallway, I felt my way to you, to kiss you. 
I'd forgotten that loving could feel so calming, telling you that your body was beautiful, sighing out the brittle disappointments from the bones, having no judgment of what the body may want to be doing, where the breath may fall. I told you that was going to be brilliant. If that's not a book that will win prizes, I don't know what is. We're very pleased to be here. My name is Alex Clark, and I'm delighted to be introducing our final guest of the day, Deborah Mogak, who is fanning herself with her new novel, Something to Hide. But we are going to be talking about um, the business of literary adaptations, something about which Debbie is pretty much a world expert, I can say, I think, because you've had all sorts of things of yours adapted, including, of course, the best exotic Marigold Hotel. Um, and you will shortly be, Tulip Fever will be being released. Um, and you've, of course, written lots and lots of screenplays. So, let us start um, by talking about how you got into the business, about how you got into this business of screenplay writing. Well, basically, can you hear me? It's very nice to be here. Isn't it lovely here? It's sunny and gorgeous. Um, basically, I didn't want anyone else to adapt my stuff. I don't want to get their paw prints all over it. <laughs> Um, and as I made up those characters, I sort of know what they're going to do better than anybody else. And I might like to surprise myself by what they do. I think, because I've adapted quite a lot of my own stuff for television, it's, it's more fun than somebody else's. Because if you've written the book, you've lived with those characters for maybe two or three years. So you know them so well that they might start surprising you when, when you turn them into creatures of drama. Because a sort of sea change happens to characters when they move off the page, even if it's a very faithful adaptation. And you can, they can just do rather interesting things, partly because like the people we know, they're often contradictory and surprising. So I like doing my own stuff, and basically, I just like to keep it to myself. I mean, other people have adapted me. Um, Tom Stoppard adapted Tulip Fever, this book that I wrote that's coming out this year. And while he was doing it, it, it is an odd feeling. It's like you're being away from home and somebody's gone into your bedroom and is rifling in your knicker drawer. Yeah. I must say, if anyone's going to rifle in my knicker drawer, it could be Tom Stoppard. <laughs> um, but it was. But I still liked it myself. But I'm nearly always. I'm often bumped off, and in the bigger budget movies, nearly always the writers bumped off at some point. Sometimes they crawl back. Um, when I, I adapted Pride and Prejudice, the film with Keira Knightley, I mean, I did two or three drafts of that. And then I was kicked off and other people came on for like a year off and on. And then they crawled back to me at the last minute and said, we're about to shoot it. And I rather patronizingly said, oh, all right then, head back. Um, because you want your name on the credits. And also you want to go to the shoot because I'm always an extra in my own things and I, I like to be in them. So you were an extra in the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel? No, Not I that wasn't one. because I wasn't Indian enough. And you couldn't, you could just be... I couldn't hear an old, old dear in the hotel, because the point of the hotel, if you saw the film of The Best Exotic, it's, it's a hotel with just a few clients, and they're all, actually some of them were my age, Celia Imrie and Bill Nye. Yeah. 
Anyway, Bill Nye's younger than me, but in the best exotic film, he cops off with Judy Dench, who won't see 77 again. How nice is that for us all? <laughs> Gives us hope. Um, do you feel a sort of trepidation when you come to see your work on the screen? Will you this time, for example? Well, I have seen an early cut of the film, and it's rather good, so I, so I, I don't, but I mean, I do a lot. With Best Exotic, um, nobody knew that film was going to be such a humongous hit, except me. I knew it. I knew it because I, I knew that, that people wanted something that told them that just if you're a tiny bit wrinkly, you can still be up for it and have fun and have a life you always had and the same feelings you always have because we're the same people. And life's a bit longer than it used to be, with any luck, and you can have a whole new episode to your life if, if, if you're adventurous. And, you know, I mean, I got married again last year. You know, you can have another go. Um, so with, but with Best Exotic, the book is very, very different to the film. And if you've seen the film, it's, it's kind of a hoot, and it's got some good jokes and wonderful performances, because it's got the creme de la creme of our mature thesp community. Um, but the book is completely different in its plotting and, and, and story and things. So I did feel a bit funny about that. But I didn't, didn't whinge, because I don't like whinging, as I said. And the film was hugely popular. So. And what does it feel like when you have, or if you have, readers coming up to you who've loved your books and either say, I really, really loved the film, I liked it more than, more than the book, or I hated that film, it was nothing <laughs> like your book. Does that ever happen to you? It happens all the time. What happens is people can't, they say, I loved your script for Best Exotic and that joke about the green bananas and I loved your script for the second Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, the sequel, and that joke about... Uh, and, and, and they never read a word of any of my books and I didn't write the scripts. But they love my work because they think I've written the scripts. Because eight squillion billion people see films rather than look at books, except us here. A very select and lovely, refined, intelligent, vibrant, gorgeous group of people. Couldn't get a better one. One of the very obvious things, of course, is that when you are sitting writing a novel, you are pretty much totally alone, aren't you? You can do anything you want. You're completely omnipotent um, in your project, and you're also, most of the time anyway, pretty solitary until it comes to the end and you have to hand it over to the publisher and then it's a collaborative project. Um, but a film is just loads of people all the time wanting their say, making their demands. I mean, that must be a kind of really funny sort of gear change. Well, if you've got a sort of resilient character and you're quite sociable, and you're doing it with people you respect, which isn't always the case, but if you are, it's really interesting. Because as David Mamet said, you know, work's more fun than fun, or it can be. And if you're at a good script meeting, and they're, they're talking about the characters and saying, well, surely Dorothy would be jealous of Ian at this stage, wouldn't she? And you'll think, oh, crikey, yes. Oh, I forgot about that. It's very easy to forget things when you're writing. Um, it's really interesting. and. You've got ideas fizzing around, but it is, as, as you say, Alex, it's a very communal activity, and you're not alone, even if you are physically alone, you've got all these voices in your head of the producer and the script editor and all this stuff swilling around. And you know also that sooner or later, it'll be taken off your hands and it will no longer be yours. And the actors and the crew and the, the cast, the cast will take it over and they will flesh it out and make it their own and it'll be 
unrecognized one will change again. These sea changes that happen, you're just the first stage, although of course they wouldn't be there if it wasn't for you. I mean, Gurinder Chandra, who did Bride and Prejudice, she, she put it like this, she said that when the script is over, it becomes a dead thing. And you, the, you pass this dead thing over to the cast and the crew and the director, who bring it alive in their huge adventure for the next three months shooting it. When they've finished, it becomes a dead thing. They pass it to the editor, and by cutting it, the editor brings it alive and changes it, of course. And then they pass it, the dead thing again, to the sound and the music and all that. And they then change it again. So you've got these four stages, and everyone is indispensable. But when you've finished a stage, it really is the next person's. And you feel that writing it, that you put your heart and soul into it. But it's not really your thing. You know, somebody's put a lot of money into that huge project and faith, and you're there, you're at their beck and call, really. And you have to be resilient and not at all precious about your work. Um, if you're a novelist, you could be as precious as precious and hoard it and guard it, your lovely private secret world where you close your metaphorical doors and be alone with your characters, and you can send your characters to Hawaii tomorrow. Nobody's going to say it's too expensive. So it's, it's, a, it's a very, very different process. And because I do both, they feed different bits of me because I'm sociable and I like the, the argy-bargy of a film pr production. But I also love being alone when I get fed up with that because a lot of things that I write are never done. I've written thick scripts about Dunkirk, about the Crimea War, about women's lives between the women, I mean, masses. And lots don't get done and that can be disheartening. So then you can close off and write a novel and it's really lucky to be able to do that. But but when I say you have to be resilient, you have to take on board at a script meeting when they say, make it funnier, <laughs> make her more sympathetic, this wouldn't happen, let's have this, we can't film that. But you must also stick up for the things you really care about. You know, you, you, you're you not just putty in their hands, but you must be prepared to, to listen and, and change it. Who would like to ask Debbie a question? Yes. Are you always happy with the director's that's a good yeah. question. Casting choices. Yes. Are they ever always happy or sometimes frustrating? I mean, the best exotic is the best example of that because every actor is peerless. And if you watch that and you see Bill Nye trying to make a dead telephone work and shaking it, I mean, just bliss, bit of comic business. And they do this wonderful business. I remember an actor who, who dropped a bit of toast in a... In a open piano as he was clearing up the house before dinner party and that's exactly what the man would have done he would have looked around a bit guiltily it's heaven so so they bring something very special when they're good but if they're a bit one notey they show up the paucity of one's words because any old sentence can sound good if Judy Dench says it 